First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of NFP, the fifth largest insurance broker in the world, combining local expertise with access to global capabilities and solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. Is he just uh, running because of his name, uh, or does he have something to offer on his own? Uh, I think I can cross that threshold. Evan Bai, a young gun with a well-known last name in Indiana politics jumped into the fray just as he was hitting the age of 30. He won that race to become Indiana Secretary of State. And two years later, by springboarded to the state's highest office, becoming the youngest governor in the nation at that time. It's an honor to come before you once again to report on the state of our state. We give thanks for the accomplishments we have forged together. And remember the many challenges that remain. Evan Bayh went on to win a second term as governor before following his dad, Birch's footsteps, elected twice to represent Indiana in the U.S. Senate. But after 12 years in Washington, he had had enough. There would be no third term. After all of these years, my passion for service to our fellow citizens is undiminished. But my desire to do so by serving in Congress has waned. I love working for the people of Indiana. I love helping our citizens make the most of their lives, but I do not love Congress. Evan buys exit from politics in 2010. What prompted his return to the scene as a candidate six years later? How serious was he about running for president? And what's he up to now? Find out on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Vigo County, Indiana, the Wabash Valley, home of Indiana State University, where Larry Bird put Terre Haute on the map. About 12 miles up the road north from Terre Haute on US 150, you'll find Shirkyville, home of one of Indiana's most prominent political families. It's where Evan Bayh's dad, Birch, ran the family farm before entering into politics serving three terms, representing Indiana in the U.S. Senate. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. Evan followed his father's path into politics, elected Indiana Secretary of State in 1986, serving two terms as governor and then two terms in the U.S. Senate. He even considered a run for the White House and was on Barack Obama's short list of vice presidential candidates in 2008. And I'm really pleased to welcome Evan Bayh to this episode of the Business and Beyond podcast. Evan, thanks for joining me. Gary, it's great to be with you today. And I particularly enjoyed the um, geographical walk down memory lane in the Wabash Valley and Shirkyville being on 150 West of Terre Haute. And, uh, you know, that's our home country, you know, five or six generations. So um, a lot of family ties over there. Yeah. And, and I was going to ask you too, because I grew up in Clinton, Evan, right up the, right up the road or right up the river in Vermilion County. You don't know where Toad Hop is, do you? You know, I don't. It must be somewhere near uh, Libertyville or New Goshen or you know, yes, those other in that vicinity. That's, that's exactly exactly right. That's exactly right. Hey, hey, one more off off the wall uh, comment too. Did did the second Dinos buy your family farm? They they did. They did. Yeah. Sue and Pete. And unfortunately, my, I got a great picture of my son Bo. Uh, I took him back to see the family homestead, and uh, he's on the front porch with Sue. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away here in this last you, year. But yeah. Uh, 
just a wonderful woman. And um, matter of fact, I don't want to digress because I know we got time limits, but probably yeah. the most interesting introduction I've ever gotten was uh, there in Terre Haute when I announced my first candidacy for governor. I announced that at our family farm. We went into town to the hotel. It was called Larry Bird's Boston Connection at that I point. I remember it, yeah. He had his three MVP trophies displayed there in the MVP room, and that's where we were having this fundraiser. So one of the local physicians gets up and he says to the, there are like 300 people, there, are all the press, TV cameras, and he says, so, we know Evan. He's one of us. Born in Terre Haute, raised in Shirkyville, and he's building to a crescendo, and he says, conceived in New Goshen. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Doc, how the heck you know that? I'd be mighty disappointed if you did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great story. That is great. So that's, well, that's, you know, that's, there aren't too many secrets in that small town, so I guess even the doc made you do that. <laughs> that's great. Well, the Second Dino's, my in-laws, the Redmond, were dear, dear friends with the Second Dino, so I... I I had heard of that connection and that was very special. Hey, what are you, what are you up to these days? I'm doing some things, mostly in the private sector. I'm on some boards of directors and uh, doing some other things in the business world. And then I also have an affiliation with my alma mater at Indiana University, where uh, they paired former Senator uh, Dan Coates, Republican, and, and myself. Dan's uh, teaching mostly out of the Luger Hamilton School of International uh, Relations. And I'm housed in the O'Neill School, what we used to call us, us old-timers, SPIA, back in the day. Uh-huh. But I am a graduate of the, of the B School, and so I uh, am available to them, the law school, and then the uh, the O'Neill School. And I'm a guest lecturer and do a variety of other things. And I just uh, I just love being around the students. It makes me feel a little bit young again. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I, I saw the news when you were uh, named to that position an executive at large at the O'Neill School. It seemed like you really enjoy that. I really do. And I particularly, I love answering their questions. And I, it makes me feel good, uh, Gary. And, you know, in your introduction, you pointed out, I got a fairly early start in life and uh, the people of our state were good enough to trust me with important responsibilities at a fairly early age. And so you learn some things along the way uh, when you're an executive. And then when you go on to the United States Senate, you learn international issues and things like that, but you learn a lot about people and what works, what doesn't work. So if if there's anything in my life's experience that I can do to help them, well, other than sharing it with my two sons, which is my top priority, I, it makes me feel good to kind of just share my observations with um, with them if it helps them in some way. Yeah. Well, you mentioned your two sons, twin boys, Bo and Nick. You know, it seems like Indiana, you know, was right there growing up with uh, those those two. Uh, it seems like yesterday. I'm sure it probably does for you, too. What's the update on, on Bo and Nick? What are they up to? You know, our place in Indianapolis is at 86th and Ditch. And so I go out walking or running sometimes and usually it takes me past St. Vincent's Hospital. And I got to look up there at the corner room where, you know, we Susan gave birth to those boys. And I just, it seems like yesterday. Yeah. And it also seems like a million years. So I guess that's yeah. a, a metaphor for life. Well, as we, as we're recording this, Bo is actually an active duty Marine Corps officer. He finished his first year in law school. But because he has his top secret clearance, which, by the way, when you're a parent, it's kind of reassuring when your child gets their top secret clearance because you, right. you know they can't have done anything too awful wrong. Either that or his college roommates were a lot more discreet than my mind, mine might have been. Uh, in any event, so he's um, he's the first lieutenant and he's in the Pentagon with a special uh, top secret unit that is using artificial intelligence to try and improve some of our weapon systems, particularly our drone surveillance and strike platforms. Regrettably, Gary, the Chinese are a little bit ahead of us in this area. Yeah. And so he's working with a lot of these tech guys from Silicon Valley 
to try and bring them up to speed. And uh, again, as we're recording this, because uh, their unit deals with a lot of top secret intelligence, he's also keeping a close eye on what's going on in the Ukraine. And so he's kind of on top of that today. His brother, and then he'll go back. He's going to be in Indianapolis working for one of our big law firms, Barnes & Thornburg, this summer. He's looking forward to that. His brother's about to finish up his MBA. And so uh, he's hoping to, I don't want to jinx things, but he's hoping to get a job offer from uh, uh, one of the sports teams there in town. He he tried finance in Wall Street. He said, these people are just unhappy. He then worked for a big consulting firm and he concluded it's better to be hiring the consulting firm than working for the consulting firm. <laughs> but I told him, I said, well, what's your passion, buddy? What do you love? He says, I love sports. And he was, he was hoping to, to kind of marry his uh, business background and his mathematical background with, uh, with athletics. And who knows, maybe following his uh, grandfather, his great grandfather's footsteps, who uh, is in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame and was the first athletic director at what is now Indiana State. Yeah. So, I may have two boys there in Indianapolis, which will uh, mean I'm going to be home a heck of a lot more. That's great. That's great. You, know, you mentioned Susan, uh, obviously such a, a wonderful, special woman. The two of you, so high profile. And you and the boys obviously have gone through a difficult last couple of years. Susan uh, losing that courageous battle with cancer about a year ago. How have you coped with that very difficult situation? Well, Gary, it's just hard. I mean, there's yeah. no other way to, to say it. We were married uh, for 32 years before she got sick. And then I helped care for her for about another nine, uh, two years and nine months after yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And she's passed away about uh, about a year ago now. So it's been about three years and nine months nine after, since she got sick. And uh, what can you say? It's hard losing your life companion like that. And it was hard for me watching my sons see their yeah. mother go through that my, my own mother, ironically, passed away from breast cancer yeah. when I was 23, the same age my sons were when they lost, uh, you know, when their mom got sick. Mm-hmm. And um, she'd want us to deal with it as best she can. I'm really delighted that there's going to be a, a beautiful memorial garden and teaching spot there in Holiday Park in Indianapolis on the north side. We're going to break ground on that. We've raised some money for that. Many people in the community have been very generous, and I want to thank them for that. Uh, and so we'll break ground on that this spring. So that'll be a living memorial for her. And then we also raised money in her memory to endow a scholarship at Indiana University for aspiring people in the O'Neill School who want to go into public service and that kind of thing. It'd be another living memorial for her. But yeah. it's just, um, for any of your viewers who've gone through this, it just leaves an empty place in your heart, in your life, and you you, you do the best you can. I guess that's the yeah. only way to, to put it. Yeah, yeah, well said. Uh, hey, w- one more question about about the boys, though. They obviously they are achieving a great success. Any chance at all they would be interested in politics, like huh. the dad? Well, I'm, I'm, like ho- I'm hopeful they'll be. I'm hopeful they'll be smarter than that, Gary. <laughs> so I think, you know, and uh, getting back to my wife for a moment. Uh, yeah. Whenever you go through something like this, it really makes you think about what's important in life. And so my sons and I have talked about it a lot. Uh, I've shared with them, and I think they believe it, that what, what really matters at the end of the day when you're you know, looking back in your life and kind of thinking what was it all about, it's going to be the people that you uh, cared about and loved, your family, your friends, your close associates. It's those human connections that will matter. That and in some way, did you do a little good in the world? I mean, in, in some yeah. way, did you try and leave this place just a little bit better off than you found it? And uh, there are a lot of ways to do that. I mean, my sons are both in the military, Nick's mm-hmm. in the Army. Uh, as well in their reserves. Uh, and so they're already doing that. So I, I think they'll try and make the world a better place. Thankfully, you can you know, don't have to run for office to do that. So yeah. time will tell, but um, 
we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Well, you certainly uh, were attracted to public service very nat- uh, naturally, grew up in a political family. Your dad, Birch, a three-term senator from Indiana. And, and it's noteworthy that this is, I think it's in, coming up in June, the 50th anniversary of Title IX, that, that, that landmark legislation uh, that revolutionized, really, uh, women's and girls' sports. I just like to, because your dad was such a consequential uh, senator, someone who who did things and made things happen. That Title IX legislation over 50 years has, has just had just uh, an amazing impact. Well, it really has. And someone was telling me that Billie Jean King was speaking at the Olympics the other day or in some form, and she mentioned Title IX. And I will occasionally have women athletic directors or coaches come up to me and say that, uh, you know, they wouldn't have had the opportunities that they've had in their life if that hadn't opened up the doors for them to be athletes and and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that's a big part of his legacy, uh, you know, Gary, and he uh, did any number of things. I won't bore you with a long speech here, but uh, there's an example of how a young man who uh, grew up in Shirkyville and worked on the farm, went to, went to Purdue for a year, did his military service for two years, came back to Purdue, then married his sweetheart and went back to the farm and then got into politics and look where it led him. And it was yeah. all about trying to help people help themselves. Yeah. So that, that is a big part of his legacy and something our family is proud of. Well, and I think it's interesting too. You Again, talk about being a consequential legislator to buy Dole Act, intellectual property. And a lot of people, maybe outside of business, don't understand the impact that that uh, has had over many years on the state of Indiana and beyond. A lot of people credit that really with giving birth to the biotechnology yeah. industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, for your viewers who don't know, a lot of the important research being done in our universities and colleges around the country was sort of bottled up. There was no way for them to get that out and have it commercialized in the marketplace where it could actually be turned into therapies and treatments uh, to, to help patients and to help fight diseases. And so that bill enabled that to happen and was, again, another landmark accomplishment. And particularly if your uh, family struggled with cancer or something like that, like ours has, you realize just how, how important uh, that is. That was another big landmark accomplishment. And by the way, I, I met, I was seated next to Bob Dole at dinner once. And he looked at me and he had a very self-deprecating sense of humor. And he said, um, by Dole, he said, that was 60% by, 40% Dole. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's an example, Gary, too. My father, and I, I followed this, too, when I was in the Senate. Uh, my father was Speaker of our State House uh, Representatives. He was not governor. Uh, you know, I was uh, had the privilege of being governor for eight years, as you mentioned. But he never introduced a piece of legislation that didn't have a Republican co-sponsor. And so I tried to follow that same approach, uh, thinking if we're going to get anything done around here, it ought to be because we find areas we can agree on. And so whether it was Title IX or the Presidential Succession Amendment or the 18-year-old vote amendment or by the Juvenile Justice Act, which tried to get young, nonviolent, first-time offenders out from being locked up at the hardened criminals and give them a chance to rehabilitate themselves. You know, that was another big thing that he did. All those things took bipartisan support, and it really kind of breaks my heart that, um, well, we, let's just say we could use we could use more of that kind of spirit and less of the fighting that we've got going on today. Hey, Rook, I want to ask you about that uh, earlier. What, what's your take on that, the divisiveness? Uh, it just permeates politics. I think it's always been part of politics, but it just seems like it's so intense now. What's your take on Is there any way to 
to kind of heal this, to solve this, to get back to some sort of, of bipartisan uh, participation? Well, I sure hope so, because we need it. And I think uh, your comment was right. Uh, politics has always been kind of divisive. You know, the, the, the original founders didn't envision a, a party system, but it arose pretty quickly. And so there have been uh, partisan divisions, you know, since way back then. But they do seem to be worse today. And the main thing, Gary, too, is that many people now define themselves uh, foremost as, you know, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat. Uh, I've myself uh, never found the world to be quite that simple. I'm sort of a pragmatist. I'm interested in, in what works. And, uh, and then I'll answer your question directly about what do we do about it. The, 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 the real problem here is that we're defining ourselves by our differences these days, as opposed to used to say, yeah, we got these differences, but we're Americans first. Yeah. Or we're Hoosiers first. And that's how we define ourselves. And now we got some differences, but now it's the differences that take precedent over the things that we have in common. So I used to think that events would kind of cure this, you know, but we had 9-11 and that brought the country together. You know, when country was attacked, that usually brings people together and it did. But then that went away after about nine months and we had a financial panic, uh, you know, that caused a rallying around that lasted like three or four months of unity. And um, so it just, uh, I don't think an event is going to do it uh, now. Uh, and I used to think that, well, maybe uh, we'd need great leaders to step up and kind of show a different way of leading and a different example. Problem is you got to first get nominated by your party. And that means a bunch of partisans usually are out there making the decision. And the real heart of the problem, Gary, and I'll tell you what I think we need to do about it. The real heart of the problem is that for too many Americans, particularly those that vote in primaries and are politically active, they think the word compromise, which used to be viewed as an act of statesmanship, right? Birch by Bob Dole get together, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson get together. They don't agree on everything, but they do work some things out and the country moves forward. They make some progress. Today, that word compromise, instead of being viewed as a necessary part of a uh, complicated democracy, is viewed as an act of betrayal. Mm -hmm. They say, how can you work with those people? How can you give an inch? And for a lot of people going to Washington today, what they promise, I'm going to go out there and fight. I'm going to fight. Well, Having strong beliefs, that's good. But fighting never solves anything. Eventually, you got to, you know, figure out where there's some kind of middle ground here. And that's just not going on because, again, compromise uh, is being viewed as um, something that should not take place by too many Americans, particularly those who vote in primaries. Now, what do you do about it? Yeah. I think, frankly, it's up to you and me and everybody watching this podcast and a lot of people who aren't watching the podcast because I'll let you in on a dirty little secret. A lot of these people in politics, they're leaders right? Otherwise, they wouldn't get elected. But they're also followers. And they were, they're reflecting in many ways all of us. They take their marching orders from all of us. And if they get the message from all of us that we've had enough of this constant fighting and not getting anything done and just hating on each other all the time, they'll start behaving a little bit differently. So let's not reward people who engage in that kind of behavior. So really, it's up to the public. Uh, I kind of hope that it's this large mass of not super ideological, not super partisan people who just care about good government. We really need them to kind of stand up and take the, take the political process back. Yeah. But too many of them aren't participating these days. Yeah. Great perspective. When we return, much more with Evan Bai. Uh, growing up, the young years in the Turkeyville uh, area around Terre Haute, a meteoric political career, elected Indiana governor, the youngest governor in the nation at that time and much more when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. 
First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of National Financial Partners, the fifth largest insurance broker and consultant in the world. Develop your total reward strategies all in one place with the combination of First Person's local expertise and NFP's global resources and integrated solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Deck. And my guest this week, Evan Bayh, two-time uh, Indiana governor, senator, uh, a leader in so many ways in the state of Indiana. And Evan, uh, I've got to ask you, obviously, as we talked uh, about in the uh, first part of the podcast, uh, your dad, Birch, was uh, such a uh, high-profile and, uh, again, consequen- uh, consequential senator. What was what was the dinner conversation like uh, growing up? Was it uh, was it a lot of you know political back and forth issues, discussions, or what was it? What was it like? Well, there was some of that. Uh, he was elected when I was seven, and my, my mother was uh, politically very aware and an involved person as well, interested in the issues and all that sort of thing. So they would discuss, as you might imagine, the family business, quote unquote, around the the dining room table and what was going on and the affairs of the day and that sort of thing. And, you know, I was privileged to do some things as a young person that you probably wouldn't if you weren't growing up around the Senate and that sort of thing. And my father was close to John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. And, and, uh, and, you know, we used to have other senators and a lot of Republicans over at our home. Back in those days, people didn't care that much about political party, which was a good thing. But it was also pretty normal, Gary. I mean, you know, my parents were coming to my ball games and things like that. Uh, they were interested that in spite of my wishes uh, sometimes that I get my homework done and I prepare for tests and that sort of stuff. So we were a normal family. And the nice thing too, you know, my, as we've discussed, my father came from Shirky, the fill there, Vigo County. My mother was from a little town, Enid, Oklahoma. It's in wheat oh. country, North central Oklahoma. My grandmother was a telephone operator, advanced air force base. But so point I make is my mother came from an agricultural background too. So neither of my parents, you know, had super egos or, you know, uh, had come from, you know, great wealth or anything like that. So we were just kind of a, a normal family. Yeah. And going to Indiana University, was that a natural choice where there were any other thoughts, uh, undergrad, where you're going to uh, head to school? Well, as I mentioned, my uh, father was a Purdue guy. Undergrad. Right, exactly. He got his degree yeah. in uh, agricultural economics and then went got his uh, law degree from IU. So uh, talk about a perfect pedigree for a career in politics in Indiana. You got a foot yeah. in both camps. But I was raised a Purdue fan. Matter of fact, I went to uh, the first basketball game ever played in Mackey Arena. UCLA. And John, John Wooden was bringing his UCLA team back, and we were playing. To, that was the year I think Rick Mount was a junior. And a guy named Lynn Shackelford hit a shot with like three seconds left to win it for UCLA. It was a close memory, game. Yeah. And so that was a big, big thrill for me. And so I grew up rooting for Leroy Keyes. It was a running with Mike Phipps back then. You know, yeah. Purdue guys. Yeah. And Rick Mount, I mentioned. And uh, I remember going to Mackey's senior year, and I had a program, and I checked off. This is before the three-point shot. Yeah. He scored 64 points, and, you know, at least a third of them would have been three-pointers. Yeah. And so, and they they didn't play much defense in those days. They lost to Iowa like 110 to 106. <laughs> but in any event, so I was raised a Purdue fan, but uh, my mother taught at Girls State every year down in Bloomington. And... Um, uh, so, and I was interested in the business school and Cranor's a great business school up at Purdue. Again, I'm an IU guy, so I'm probably biased, but you know, the IU business school is just very good. And so I was kind of naturally drawn to that. And, um, so that's why I ended up going to, to Bloomington and, and, and loved it. So as I tell my Purdue friends, Gary, I said, I root for Purdue every game of the year, except one. 
Step one, yeah. <laughs> and you wouldn't trust me if I didn't root for my own alma mater. I mean, <laughs> that's right. Hey, hey, you know, you mentioned Rick. Now, that's true. How many points would he have scored if there were a three-point line? Because I oh. think most, you know, most of his shots were from three-point range. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he would have set all kinds of records. But yeah. uh, uh, what was college like? What did you do for fun? What, what, uh, where'd you hang out? Did you hang out at Knicks? Where, what, did you, what was IU like for Evan Bynes? Well, as a matter of fact, I was lecturing in this uh, O'Neill class last week. And at the end of it, I said, look, I'm looking forward to it. was virtual. I was doing it. I said, I'm looking forward to coming back to campus. And when the next class I'm teaching is done, if your professor will allow, we can all gather at Nick's. And as far as I know, my father and I are the only father-son combination to have a little plaque on the wall. If you go into Nick's, there's these booths on the right when you first go in. And I've got a little plaque there. And he's got a mine says that I used to enjoy strombolis when I would go to Nick's. That's true. But that's not all I would enjoy. At Nick's. <laughs> Very good. So that they left that off the plaque. So sure, we'd go to Nick's. And my, my first two years in Bloomington, Gary, we lost a total of one basketball game. Wow. So my freshman yeah. year, we lost one. Scotty May broke his arm. We yes. beat Kentucky by 24, something like that during the regular season. So that was season. probably 75. 74 5. Yeah. And then yeah, my yeah. second year was 75 6. So that was the undefeated year, which I think the 74 5 team was probably a little, little stronger. But uh, so. Going to the basketball games, you know, that was kind of the center of uh, student life and, yeah. um, you know, doing the things that undergraduates normally do and that sort of thing. Yeah. What What about um, a politics? Obviously, you grew up in a political family, but when did that political bug, that passion to pursue politics? Was it IU? Was it before IU? Did you always know that was a path you wanted to, to head down? Well, I can, I can tell you. So I didn't participate in student uh, politics. Yeah, I was wondering. I, I, didn't, okay. I didn't want people to think, you know, I was some big shot or, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. And I did take a semester off. And, you know, I grew up, as we were discussing, liked public policy issues, like governmental issues, the sort of what the, the important uh, matters facing the country were and that sort of thing. Admired what my parents had done and were doing. Uh, so I was interested in all that, but I had no reason to believe that I was going to make a career out of that. I was interested in you know business and ec- my degrees in business economics. Uh, but I did take a semester off from IU, the second semester of my sophomore year. Uh, my father decided to run for president in 1976. So I got in a car, uh, somebody loaned us a car, maybe in Ontario, drove out to Des Moines, Iowa, spent about five or six weeks staying in people's houses all over Iowa, being a surrogate wow. candidate. And then went up to New Hampshire for another five or six weeks. My roommate also took off. And, you know, I think he opened the Concord New Hampshire office for us and made a lot of fun. And so that was really the formative experience for me politically. Those three or four months, uh, my father didn't win, of course. But I was just sort of inspired, to, you know, talking in coffee shops and you know, being at plant gates and meeting, meeting in small settings where you can answer people's questions. I, I really thought that's how democracy should be. And so that's really when I first started thinking, hmm. I wonder if, uh, you know, there might be something in this for me someday. And then I went on to law school, uh, took another semester off there and was the chairman of my father's last uh, Senate campaign, which was unsuccessful. So I volunteered on two unsuccessful campaigns, which may mean I'm not a very good volunteer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that I got a lot of experience from that. I was in, gosh, uh, Gary, of our uh, 92 counties, I was in probably 89 or 90 of them uh, during mm-hmm. that. And so that really is when I you know, got my feet on the ground, met a lot of people, and was just really inspired and thought the public's going to give me a chance. This is what I'd like to do. Yeah. And you didn't waste any time at all. Elected Secretary of State, 1986? Correct. Yeah. And you were what, 30? I was 30. And, you know, <laughs> there have been a lot of uh, 
a lot of said and written about written about this last election and all that. Uh, but as secretary, so the secretary of state in Indiana, at least, may still be the case. In those days, was sworn in December the first. In case there were any recounts that needed to take place, I was in charge of the recounts. And there was a new recount commission because there had been a disputed congressional race in the so-called bloody eighth yeah, two yeah. years before. And so um, there were three close state legislative races, including one that was decided by a single vote. And then this uh, closest congressional race was up in the what was then the third. John had been John Radovich's old seat, a man named John Hyler was a sitting congressman and a fellow named Tom Ward had come within 46 votes on election night. And so it all came down to whether one precinct should be counted or not. It was a heavily Republican precinct that would have thrown the election to the Democrat. Uh, David Hamilton, my dear friend, who's now in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, so he's way smarter as a lawyer than me, voted to not count the votes because there had been some technical flaws in the way the votes had been stored. No evidence of fraud, no evidence of tampering, but the, the strict letter of the law had not been followed. Some seal had been put on the box that was supposed to be there. Rex Early, who went on to become the Republican state chairman, and you know, I couldn't swear before I got in a car with Rex Early, and I became <laughs> something of an expert on three and a half hour drives Rex. Yeah. to and from Elkhart. So Rex became a good friend. Matter of fact, he came to my son's taking their oaths, and he sent me a nice Marine Corps hat for Susan. It said Marine Corps mom. He was a Marine in the Second World War. He voted to count the votes. So everybody looked at me. I was going to decide who this congressman was. And I'd run on a platform of saying, I, I think we should count people's votes unless there's some good evidence to suggest we shouldn't. And so I cast the deciding vote to seat the Republican. Now, I kind of wonder if that would take place these days. But, you know, the moral of the story is Elkhart County is a pretty Republican county. Uh, I always did very well in Elkhart County. Yeah. Because they yeah. you know, didn't really know much about what I stood for in this or that. But they figured I was honest. And yeah. so that was a pretty good thing. Yeah. Well, you uh, went on to run for governor uh, successfully and uh, beat John Mutz, 1988. And I think I think back to what I was doing when I was 30 or 32, and I don't know if I knew which end was up necessarily. Here you are, you run for governor against really an experienced uh, you know, businessman, politician. What was that like? I, I mean, as a as a as a 30, 32 year old, what was it like to be in that environment? And that cauldron, uh, if you will, running and ultimately being elected governor. Well, there's a lot of stress and pressure, as you can yeah. imagine. And John Mutz is a fine man. I think highly of John. Uh, sometimes these elections are decided by factors beyond anyone's control. And we ran a good campaign. He ran a good campaign. Just so happened that uh, we were successful that year. And so there are a lot of stresses in that. No question about it. But I'll tell you what was really stressful. So I'm the governor-elect. I'm the sitting secretary of state. The House of Representatives was tied 50-50. There was no constitutional mechanism in Indiana at that point for breaking the tie. And one of the responsibilities of the secretary of state is to preside over the state House of Representatives until they elect a speaker. They were incapable of electing a speaker because they get tied 50-50. So fine. And here's an interesting uh, uh, moral for the people who are watching us here today. Everybody thought they finally reached a compromise. They were going to have two speakers. They'd alternate days. Every committee would have two chairmen. They'd alternate days. Well, one of the big problems in our, our legislative process is that the speaker can stop a lot of things and just kill them uh, individually. In this situation, that couldn't happen. And so a lot got done because nobody was in a position to stop yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's now a plaque on the wall of the House of Representatives commemorating the historic 
uh, divided session of the legislature because it ended up working pretty well. So I had to deal with all that while I'm also hiring a whole new staff. We hadn't had a governor of my political party in 20 years, so there weren't, yeah. weren't a lot of people who'd run these departments just kind of waiting to come back in. We had to find you know new people or a lot of new people. Had to put together a state budget, had to put together an inaugural address, had to put together a state of state address. Uh, Susan had to get us moved into the governor's residence. I mean, there was a lot going on yeah. in 60 days. And by the way, you have Christmas and New Year's thrown in there too. So that period, that period was pretty stressful. I, I started that period when I was 32. My birthday is the day after Christmas, so I turned 33, but I think I really turned about 53 or something. I was like going to say, you probably aged a little bit. Who, who, who did you count? I, is you, you, you think about mentors or confidants. I mean, anyone needs them, has them. But as a young governor, I, I would think it would be especially important. Who did you kind of lean on with it? folks you can talk about that you really you know counted on to, for advice and counsel? Yes, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the lessons I share with these young people in uh, uh, O'Neill or in Kelly or the other you know forums that I have a chance to speak in, which is to say a lot of leadership uh, comes down. You've got to have a, a core moral frame. You have to have values that you believe in. Otherwise, you're just rudderless and will just kind of flap around in the wind. So you've got to have a moral compass grounded in, in solid values. But after that, particularly if it's an enterprise as large as the state of Indiana, you have to be able to identify, attract, and retain good people and motivate them. You have to learn how to delegate. That was kind of an issue for me because I was you know, kind of a little bit of a control person. I had to learn to get over that. Uh, but being able, surrounding yourself with good quality people. I mentioned David Hamilton. He was one. I mean, my chiefs of staff, the first was Bill Morrow. The second was Bart Peterson. He ends up being you know, mayor and then at Eli Lilly. And it's now he's running the uh, Crystal House Foundation. Mm-hmm. Fred Glass was uh, athletic director at IU for 10 years. Joe Hogsett was my final chief of staff. He's now mayor. So these people, my budget directors went on to do great things at, at Cummins and other places. Uh, my general counsels, uh, you know, long careers in the uh, legal profession and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I was really had the privilege of being able to identify good, mostly young folks to surround myself with. But I, I always had my father I could rely on for, you know, to kind of bounce things off him. His uh, his last press secretary, a wonderful man who lives over in Terre Haute named Fred Nation. Fred Nation. Great yeah. years, drove from Terre Haute to Indianapolis to work for me when I was governor. Um, he was, a, a you know, a little bit older than the rest of us. I could count on him for good counsel. Lee Hamilton, somebody else, a great, solid individual, a man named Ed Lewis, who was a you know just a wonderful you know confidant. Uh, John Welliver, Jim Wells, just a whole group of people from around the state that uh, I was able to rely on their counsel. But the last thing I'll uh, just say about all that is, um, uh, and of course, I should mention first and foremost my wife, who without yeah. her I, I would have been nothing. Matter of fact, more than one person has told me they voted for Susan By's husband. So I know where my <laughs> bread was. I know where my bread was buttered. Yeah. Uh, but um, my father once said to me when I told him, we were sitting outside a convenience store somewhere in Bloomington, I think. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm thinking about maybe doing this, Dad. And he said, well, you know, he's told me two things. He said, first, you shouldn't do it if you want to. That's great. I'll be proud of you. But you shouldn't do it because it's what your father did. You should do it because it's what you want to do. And it's in your heart, not just because you love your dad. Uh, and that's the first thing. The second thing was, he said, uh, you'll be your own man. You can chart your own course. I'll always be available to you if you want to ask my advice. And he said, he said, I've made enough mistakes of my own. No reason for you to make the same ones I did. So <laughs> sometimes you, you know, learn from things that don't go quite right. And um, yeah. as much as you do by things that go well. So to answer your question, it was stressful, but I had a lot of people help me out. And 
those eight years, you know, we left the state with the largest budget surplus in history, never raised taxes, more than 400,000 new jobs created, increased. I'm particularly proud of the uh, 21st Century Scholars Program. It's, you know, led more than 100,000 young people across our state to be able to get a, a college education. Uh, just, you know, new environmental standards, just a whole host of things we were able to do, uh, breaking the glass ceiling for women and minorities in state government. And, um, but it was a team sport, Gary. It was a yeah. team sport. Yeah, I was yeah. I was lifted up by a whole lot of other people. Yeah, well, uh, a lot of people seem to like uh, like what you did. I think I read where your your approval rating at the end of your second term was something like like eighty percent, uh, which is unheard of. Eighty <laughs> percent sounds pretty good, and it is pretty good. But I would always ask the question now: Is that because they think I'm doing a good job, or they're happy that I'm leaving office? <laughs> which, which, which which is it here? <laughs> that's good. That's good. Well, perhaps writing uh, some of that momentum. Uh, after leaving uh, the governor's office, ultimately running uh, successfully for the U.S. Senate. Uh, your time, your two terms in the Senate, uh, 12 years. How would you kind of characterize that, that, that 12 years in the, in the Senate? Well, it was a, uh, an active period for our country. My first day in the Senate, I took the oath of office to defend the Constitution. My second day, I was sworn in as a juror in the first impeachment trial of the president since 1868. And there were no rules or and here's another moral lesson. There were no rules for how to conduct the trial. They'd torn them up, thrown them away since the time of Andrew Johnson. And the Senate met for all hundred of us for five hours. We couldn't agree. So finally, we nominated Ted Kennedy, really liberal, and uh, Phil Graham, really conservative. He's from Texas to get together and see if they could hammer something out. They came back to us with a proposal. It was adopted 100 to nothing. I mean, you couldn't get 100 people to vote for Mother Teresa in the United States Senate today. <laughs> So, but that shows yeah. when you sit down and actually listen yeah. to each other instead of yelling, you can, you know, yeah. uh, hammer out some compromises. So I had that. Then we had uh, 9-11 took place. Uh, obviously that was, and I was on the intelligence committee, which I've always hoped that's not an oxymoron, Senate intelligence <laughs> committee. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, so we had to deal with that. And uh, I think have done a fairly effective job. If you had told me that more than 20 years would pass and there would not be another a major terrorist incident in our country. I would have just said no way, but that's because of a lot of hard work of a lot of uh, brave men and women, some of whom you'll never know because they were kind of working in the shadows to protect us and some of our allies helping us out. And then we had the financial crisis, yeah. complete meltdown. I remember I was in the banking committee. I got called down to the Capitol in the middle of the night. I'd get dressed and go down there. And it was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, the secretary of treasury, and the Secretary of the Treasury uh, turns to Bernanke and says, Ben, tell the senators what we're dealing with here. And it was like 10 of us, half Republicans, half Democrats. And he said, uh, and he was a student of the Great Depression, Bernanke was. And he said, um, within 48 to 72 hours, we will experience a complete meltdown of the global financial system. It will take with it millions of jobs, tens of thousands of businesses. And if we are not lucky, it could rival in magnitude the Great Depression. And we listen to that, and there's silence. And then finally somebody said, well, we can't have that. So what <laughs> yeah, are we going to do? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and again, we hammered out something. It ended up passing 75-25. You know? We had to try and save the economy. There was no perfect answer, but we had to do what had to be done to save things. And so that whole period was very eventful. Wow. Then Barack Obama was elected, first African-American president in the history of our country. Uh, which I think says something good about America. Uh, heck, he even carried Indiana. It was the first Democrat yeah. since uh, Lyndon Johnson. Says something good about our state. So it was a very active period. But I, I have to confess, Gary, that just personally, 
uh, I probably enjoyed being governor a little bit more just because you do things every day. You're making decisions. You're running something. A day hardly passes when you can't put your head in the pillow at night and think about at least one thing you've done. Yeah. In Congress, months go by and things don't happen. So, And it's just become very partisan and very um, ideologically polarized. And, you know, I tend to be more in the middle. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I tend to be a little more conservative for my own political party, certainly in fiscal matters and national security policy. Uh, and so uh, it's just it's hard to be a, a moderate, a pragmatist in Washington today. And that's yeah. really what led to my retirement. Yeah. yeah. What You mentioned Barack Obama and a lot of reporting that you were on the short list as, as VP candidate for, for Barack Obama. I'm six that- one. I end up on the short list. These other guys <laughs> must have been pretty tall. How does that work? Yeah. Well, what was that? T- talk about that experience and, and how close were you to perhaps being the, the VP? Well, uh, his chief, of st- his campaign manager wrote a book and said it really came down to Joe Biden and myself. And you know, the, a lot of factors go into it, I'm sure. But one of them, I know, and Harry Reid told me this, Harry Reid uh, was arguing very forcefully with Barack Obama that it had to be Joe Biden. And the reason for that was that uh, Delaware had a Democratic governor and Biden, if he was picked and elected, he'd be replaced by a Democrat. Uh-huh. And we had a Republican governor. And so he, Harry Reid was saying, you know, look, we got to have, we can't, you know, lose a Senate seat here. So that may have probably did have something to, to do with it. But it was an honor to be considered uh, the whole process. Uh, you know, I said, pr- I'm proud. Both my sons have their top secret security credentials. Well, what I had to go through, I mean, it, uh, well, let's just say, um, it was way more invasive than a colonoscopy. I mean, they check everything out, uh, you know, yeah. not just one part of your anatomy. They, they check everything <laughs> out. So finally, they, they fly me out very secretively to uh, St. Louis, where uh, Obama's campaigning that day. And they take me up the freight elevator. So I'm waiting for him in this hotel suite when he comes in. And we have hamburgers together and kind of just chit-chat a little bit, get to know each other. And finally, he looks over at this table, and there's this, like, three-foot stack of stuff there, all my medical records, tax returns, any kind of dirt they could dig up, anything on me. They'd talk to your wife, your parents, your kids, all the Internet stuff, I mean, everything. And so he finally, uh, he looks at me, he says, I've, I've looked at all that. He says, nothing in there bothers me. But if there's something you haven't told me, uh, you need to, because it's going to come out. He said, they've, they're even talking to people I was in first grade. With. So do you have anything you think I should know? And I said, well, your people were pretty thorough, uh, Brock, but there's one or two things I should probably share with you they didn't ask me about. And I did. And he looked at me and he said, um, that's it? And I said, well, yeah, that's it. And then he said, well, you haven't led much of a life, have you? <laughs> Which I always got a big kick out of that. Oh, that's outstanding. Hey, you mentioned when, when you left in 2010 and, and the, the reasons behind that surprised a lot of people uh, when you decided to, to not run for, for a third term. As you look back on that, uh, glad you made that, that decision? You know, I am, uh, Gary. And um, as, a, as I said, I'm not terribly uh, partisan and I'm not an, ideolo- an ideologue. You know, I believe in what works to try and help people make the most their lives and give them a little more opportunity that hopefully they can pursue. Uh, and Washington has just become very divisive. And that's just not my style. And so even was more one. so, obviously, than back then, right? Yeah. Oh, more so, yeah. it's more so now than it was back yeah. then and more so then than it was in my father's days. And I right. mentioned we used to have Republican senators over to our home all the time. They were his friends. And some of my best friends in the Senate were Republican senators. Dick Luger and I, for example, got along great. We had a, a, a very, very good uh, friendship. And uh, so there's that. 
and I concluded I was just a little bit more of an executive at heart. And I was 54 at the time and had been in uh, public office really since I was 30 with only a two-year you know, gap in there. And my wife, God love her, uh, told me that there was nothing dishonorable about actually being able to pay for our son's college. And so that <laughs> sounded like a might be a good thing to do. So, yeah, I made the, it was, it was like cutting off my arm in some ways. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. just a very hard decision, but it was the right thing to do. And then Gary, there was something I did not know at that time that made it even more of the right thing to do, which is that, um, you know, if I had been in public office uh, when my wife got brain cancer, I wouldn't have been able to care for her the way I was able to care for her. And we were very fortunate. We had excellent insurance. And so, um, trying to give her the best chance she could to recover and get her the best quality of life. Uh, that meant a lot more to me than uh, sitting down there in the you know, Congress, just wondering why all these people are fighting with each other. So yeah. it turned out to be fortuitous. I didn't know that, but it was, it was, yeah. it was the right decision. Yeah. You're very busy right now, but as you look at, uh, at what's next, uh, any, any thoughts a the longer term on what uh, that next uh, adventure next journey for Evan by? Well, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now. Yeah. And so I don't really have any plans to change. Uh, the president was kind enough to um, invite my sons and me down to have lunch with him after my wife passed. And he was very nice. He spent two and a half hours at her memorial service and he spoke. And, uh, you know, he let me know that if there was something I wanted to do, that uh, he would want me to help him out. But there's just nothing right now. You know, most of the big jobs have been filled and that sort of thing. So, I mean, if he were to call me and say, look, the country needs you, I need you. I'd I think any patriot has to consider consider that. But putting that aside, you know, it's possible this thing with IU could grow into something uh, over over time. I, I enjoy that. And then just continuing, although, you know, when you're a parent, you go from kind of being hands-on to then being kind of a coach for them to then kind of being in the stands cheering them on. And I think I'm kind of in that category now. But the more time I can spend with my sons and if one or both of them end up uh, living in Indianapolis, that would make me happy. So I get to be home and see my friends more. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll live long enough to see uh, daughters-in-law and uh, grandchildren someday. Very good. Evan By, a uh, former U.S. senator, former governor uh, in Indiana and a leader for our state in so many ways. Evan, it's been a, a really mean a real treat to uh, have our conversation on the podcast today and really appreciate you taking the time to join me. Well, it's been my privilege, Gary. Thank you. And uh, I want to thank your viewers for being so tolerant to, uh, to watch me here today. Very good. Evan Bye. Thanks uh, again. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. It is a weekly conversation uh, with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes and get Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.